is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. Good luck getting to where you want to go on time if you're flying for the July 4th holiday. Airlines are dealing with hundreds of delays and cancellations. It's really a kind of complicated story. We'll go in-depth. And you've heard of quiet quitting, but uh, what about grumpy staying? It's something more of us than you realize can relate to. Also, you will never look at your bed the same way again after we tell you what is really on your pillowcases. We start, though, in-depth with air travel delays across the country. Henry Hartefeld is a travel and airline industry analyst as well as president of the Atmosphere Research Group. Henry, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So, of course, part of the story for the delays, weather, the weather has been just foul across much of the U.S. But having said that, there is more to this story. The airlines are pointing fingers at the FAA, the FAA pointing fingers back at the airlines. So what's going on there? Well, let's put it this way. If this were a wedding, no one could wear a white dress down the aisle. Uh, you know, the, the airlines uh, certainly don't control the weather, neither does the FAA, and that is the largest culprit. You've also got airplanes and crew that are not where they're supposed to be. That contributes to the problem. But the FAA has admitted it is short-staffed. In fact, earlier in the spring, they even told the airlines, cut your flying in and out of the New York area and at Washington Reagan National 10% because we don't have enough controllers to handle that. So there's shared responsibility for this problem. Uh, and look, they all have to work together to solve the problem. So granted, you can't do anything about the weather, but you, you mentioned uh, being short-staffed. Would uh, adding more staff, if they were able to, uh, we don't know how long that's going to take, uh, be able to help with this problem? Well, the, the airlines have added pilots, flight attendants, and other critical workers during the past year. The FAA has also stepped up its hiring, but it takes time to get new air traffic controllers hired, trained, and ready to work in the towers and the air traffic control centers. Uh, and because the training is so complex, they only do it once a year. So the FAA is doing all it can, but it can't force people to become air traffic controllers they're facing this, the same challenges many other industries are in terms of trying to recruit people uh, and com compounding the problem. Air traffic controllers are required by law to retire at age 56. How much of this is also because uh, during the pandemic, the airlines let go or bought out, you know, for early retirement, too many people and now they're stuck? At this point, that's not really the problem anymore. Last summer, it certainly was, and definitely in 2021. But the good news is that the airlines in the past year have been able to hire a lot of the pilots they need, not all, but a lot, and they've they've reduced the gaps that they had. They still need to hire probably 8,000 or so more pilots during the course of this year, um, after which we'll generally be back to a normal uh, hiring rate. For you, pilots, you know, this shows that uh, bad weather in a few places can affect travel all over the country. Is that a symptom of a, a bigger problem logistically? And is there something logistical that could be done to maybe ease this? That's a really smart question. I like it. So here's the thing. The weather has hit multiple airports uh, uh, across multiple parts of the country, and it's been one day after the other. So unlike times where you get a bad weather day and then the airline can reset at night, they don't get that luxury anymore. Uh, they've had bad weather in major hubs, including Chicago, Denver, the Texas hubs at Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston. 
in the Northeast U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, and so while the airlines are trying to do all they can to get back to normal at the end of every day, they still have airplanes not where they're supposed to be, pilots where they're not supposed to be, and compounding all of the problems we've got. It's the end of the month, and that's when pilots and flight attendants tend to run out of the number of hours they're legally allowed to work by the FAA. All right. I want to thank our guest, Henry Hartevelt, a travel and airline industry analyst, also president of the Atmosphere Research Group. Remember that old uh, song, uh, the lyrics went, uh, where have all the flowers gone? Yeah. Long yeah. time passing. Well, the same can be said of some COVID money. Where has the $200 billion gone? Well, potentially, it turns out, maybe fraud. Tom Schatz is president of Citizens Against Government Waste. Tom, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Glad to be on. So $200 billion, nothing to sneeze at. I don't have it. Wish I did. Uh, Where did it go? Well, it went to people that were not eligible. It went to businesses that either uh, did not exist or lied about how many employees they had. It went to people that were on, for example, the Department of the Treasury's do not pay list, which says don't pay these people because they defrauded the government. Uh, It was uh, wasted because there were very few controls in place to prevent it from going out to the wrong people. Wait, to back, to, to, wait, wait, to back, I want you to back, wait, wait, Tom, hold on, hold on, because I want you to back up for one thing that you said, which I find absolutely fascinating. So you're saying that some of this money actually went to places that had on their identifier a stamp or whatever notice not to be paid, but they were paid anyway. Yes. So inside the federal government, because there are so many incompatible computer systems and information technology systems, they don't talk to each other. So the Department of the Treasury has a do not pay portal and a list that says do not pay these people any money because they owe the federal government money or they defrauded the government or collected uh, defrauded money. Uh, They shouldn't get any more money from any other federal agency. So the SBA, when they gave out money for the economic uh, disaster loans and the PPP loans, didn't look at it and didn't use it. So somewhere there's a hidden hero in the story, I bet, who warned before the pandemic and before we even knew a pandemic was coming, that in case of a problem like that, uh, there were not enough safeguards in place to prevent this kind of cheating and, and, and the government making it so easy to cheat. Uh, who is that person, and do we know if there is such a person? Well, the Department of, sorry, the uh, Small Business Administration's Inspector General, I say department because every department has an Office of Inspector General, uh, they issued two reports before the money even went out because they had previously pointed out that the internal controls, those are essentially the accounting systems that track the money and send the money out, were not capable of spending money properly. And that was before the SBA got essentially 14 years worth of money in like two weeks. <laughs> so it was a you know disaster, literally, waiting to happen in terms of the money being wasted. So this $200 billion, of course, this is taxpayer money. So not all of it, but some of it is my money. Uh, am I ever going to get it back? Well, they have made some progress. They have um, thousands of cases they have brought. They have uh, several billion dollars that they've recovered. So they're continuing to work on getting some of it back, but they will never get all of it back without any question. And of course, the issue becomes, what are they doing to prevent this kind of 
wasteful spending the next time that we have something like the COVID-19 pandemic. So if we're not going to get all of the money back, how much is going to be left out there on the table? Uh, That's hard to say. Uh, They have a thousand cases that they've opened. Um, They've got uh, lots more to do. I, I think I read somewhere that it would take and don't quote this, something like 60 or 70 years based on the amount of time it takes to bring a case to get every single penny back. So there's no way that they're going to to do that. You mentioned in passing, you kind of raised a question, but you didn't answer it about what we are doing, if anything, to head this sort of fraud off in the future. Are we doing anything? Well, one of the problems here in Washington, D.C. is that they love to spend money, but they don't really keep track of what happens with it when it leaves. It's also one of the reasons there are so many duplicative and overlapping programs throughout the federal government. So it's not all that exciting to say, hey, I'm putting some fraud prevention measures in place. You know, vote for me. It's better to say, hey, I'm going to build you a new bridge next to the bridge that already exists. Vote for me. So you see how the the mindset works here in Washington. Uh, In another organization that uh, felt the consequences of wasting money because they'd go out of business, they would not stand for a single penny of this type of money being wasted. But here, it's the taxpayers' money. So eh, we're not going to worry so much about how it gets wasted. (laughs) So who cares, right? All right. Thank you so much. Uh, That is Tom Schatz, uh, president of Citizens Against Government Waste. You know, I was doing some figuring. If we got back uh, that $200 billion, uh, I was trying to figure out the stuff that I could buy that I'm not buying now. Right. A a lot. There's a lot of stuff I can buy. A really long subscription to TV Guide. They still make that? No, I don't know. But with $200 billion, you could probably bring it back. You can probably, yeah, you can probably publish it yourself. <laughs> yeah. uh, by the way, remember the uh, that mercenary dude who uh, marched, uh, was trying to march anyway with his uh, troops to Moscow, to the Kremlin? No. When we come back, we're going to talk about what some people think he was really up to. And still ahead, did you think about quitting your job recently, but maybe decided to stay? If you did and are not happy about it, there's a new term, and it will show you you are not alone. Mm. Right now, though, the Wall Street Journal report uh, reports that the uh, Wagner leader uh, planned to seize two of Russia's top military officials when he started his short-lived mutiny on Saturday, and this after he expressed some displeasure with Russian military leadership. Robert English is back with us. He is director of Central European Studies at USC. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So this uh, Wagner leader, this Prigozhin guy, it turns out, I mean, from what I'm reading, and tell me if I've got it wrong, uh, it doesn't appear to be as smart as some people thought he was. I think um, he let emotion get away with him. He let his ambition and his excitement and his anger all boil up and lead him into trying something that was really far-fetched, and indeed, um, it failed. But these new details from the Wall Street Journal, other sources, about just what he thought he might pull off, arresting those two officials are the chief of the general staff of the Russian armed forces and also the minister of defense. And he was going to arrest the two of them as if they were just waltzing into a corner bar. Um, Not very likely. Um, And of course, getting all the way to Moscow um, with a sort of column of you know, jeeps and a few tanks never seemed like it had the greatest chance either, not unless a lot of people joined in. So is he now in Putin's crosshairs or does he get away with this uh, scot-free? 
I would think he's in Putin's crosshairs. And in fact, other interesting details, along with the Wall Street Journal reporting, recently have been the claim of Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president, who's normally seen as a lackey of Putin's, but supposedly played a you know, intermediary mediating role here. I'm not sure I buy that. And now he claims that Putin wanted to kill Prigozhin and that he talked him out of it. So a lot of uh, would-be killing and arresting going on. We don't know the truth of all this, and I'm very wary of being manipulated um, by, you know, the leaks on all different sides. Um, I'm kind of in a wait-and-see mode, but I agree with you. The one thing that is clear is that Prigozhin had a, a surge of megalomania and tried something extremely far-fetched that only made sense if he was almost as deluded as Putin was when he invaded Ukraine. You know, Prigozhin's delusion that everyone would rise up and join him was just about as bad as Putin's delusion that all of Ukraine would rise up and cheer the Russian invasion. Speaking of Putin, uh, the stories are he's known to be somewhat paranoid. Uh, this is definitely going to make him more paranoid and maybe uh, strike out, and that could be dangerous for the world, yes? Um, yes, if we're talking about the possibility of something like um, an intentional nuclear accident at the Zaporozhye Atomic Energy Station in Ukraine that Russia occupies, or actually using a tactical nuclear weapon. But in the short term, the disarray on the Russian side in the Russian armed forces has seen Ukraine score some big successes in their spring offensive um, the last couple of days. The Ukrainians have been slowly pushing the Russians back, adding, you know, 50, 75 square kilometers a day to the territory they're liberating. And they've established, um, a, you know, a bridge hold, a, a foothold on the the eastern bank, the Russian side of Dniepro River, which has been the border, the dividing line between the two, that's really significant because if they can hold that and build up that base, it's like the Allies landing at Normandy, right? They can now start moving on. So, um, yeah, Putin's army is weakened. Even if he's perhaps more dangerous, we can't know, but your caution is well advised. Is he? But is Putin also weakened to some degree? Because he stays in power not because of the military, right? He stays in power because the elites who are around him and who feed off of him uh, support him. Do they think after this past weekend, you know, maybe this guy isn't worth uh, hanging around with too much longer? They're probably thinking that, but there's no way they can put that into practice. They are you know, constantly monitored. The surveillance is intense. The discipline is extreme for speaking out of turn, for disobedience, for not even sh just for sh not showing up at some public reception where Putin wants a show of support. All of that is severely punished. And so they're all still behaving. And it's hard to see, you know, they're thinking that this guy's weaker. They're thinking that this can't last forever. They're surely thinking that this near coup um, has shaken Putin's authority. But how that translates into them doing anything is still hard to imagine without a military leader and troops behind him. Mm. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Robert English, uh, Director of Central European Studies at USC. 
You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. I have a feeling a lot of people are going to be uh, washing their bed sheets and pillowcases today, especially after you hear this. A report from Amerisleep found that unwashed pillowcases harbor about 17,000 times more bacteria than the average toilet seat. Now, that may sound disturbing. Actually, it does sound disturbing. Oh, it does. It <laughs> so, definitely so, does. Yeah. It does. I mean, why pretend? It does sound disturbing. But is it really? Dr. Hadley King is a board-certified dermatologist in New York City. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for inviting me. So, I mean, we live in a world, as you know, uh, where, you know, we're mere, you know, people and we're surrounded by bacteria. They live in us, around us, on us. Uh, other kinds of parasites, right? Uh, viruses are all around us. Does it really amount to much that there are 17,000 times more bacteria on a pillowcase than a toilet seat? Good question. And in some cases, um, it may not. You know, if, if you've recently had any skin infections, for example, then it would be particularly important to um, to be washing the bed clothes so that you don't spread the infection to another part of your skin or to someone else's skin. Um, but, you know, so we have some healthy bacteria that lives on our skin, and that would be less alarming. However, you know, we still need to be washing our, our bed linens regularly because also just dead skin cells accumulate there too. And that feeds dust mites, which um, then is going to attract them to your bed and help them multiply. And people have allergic reactions to that. Um, and just, you know, for general cleanliness, we want to minimize that as much as possible. So how does this happen that there is more bacteria on a pillowcase than a toilet seat, which... Uh, gets up close and personal with our <laughs> nether regions on a regular basis, whereas on a pillowcase, generally it's your face and your head and your hair if you have it. That's right. But we have bacteria all over us. And certainly, you know, we put our hands on our pillowcases too. And and that's, we're always touching things. So our hands tend to be um, particularly um, susceptible to germs. Um, and also, you know, our face is exposed to um, the world more than our nether regions in most cases. Um, and so, yeah, we get plenty of um, microbes that, that live there. And then we there's a lot of contact between our face and the pillow um, versus probably, you know, shorter contact with, with, the, with the toilet. Why do I think that nether region sounds like a place to go for vacation? (laughs) Where did you go for Christmas? I went to nether nether region. (laughs) Uh, How how often then should should we uh, wash our pillowcases? I presume like once every 10 years is not enough. No, it could be more than that. Yeah. So how, how often? So I think the general recommendations are once a week for the all the sheets and twice a week for pillowcases. Well, I guess I'm okay because uh, my wife is definitely all about cleanliness. So uh, now I think I know why. She's always washing the pillowcases. Uh, But, you know, it does almost sound like if there's a lot more bacteria on your pillowcase that it might be safer for you to sleep with your head on a toilet seat. (laughs) No, you do that, Rob. (laughs) I've I've been known to party too much in my past, and that has probably happened. Okay. But 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 to his point, doctor. I mean, I mean, it almost sounds like you're better off sleeping that way. 
Well, certainly less comfortable. Um, and no, I think that, you know, to bed and the pillow makes a lot of sense. It just means that we need to be conscientious about washing regularly to minimize our exposure to, to anything that we don't want to be exposed to and to help minimize um, dust mites as well. So can I get personal? How often do you wash your pillowcases? I think I'm going to come in right about once a week. So, um, so, so, so you're I, behind. I, you should do it twice yeah, a week. That's right. <laughs> that, that, that's a good so point. No touching your face. <laughs> but but what, <laughs> so. what, what about hotels, though? You know how more and more hotels, when you go to them, they now uh, put up a sign that says, you know, unless you uh, tell us otherwise, we're not going to, going to change your sheets for the next, you know, like five years or something like that. Uh, <laughs> how How often should a hotel do it? I think the same policy. And so, you know, so many hotel stays might just be one or two nights. And so it'd be reasonable that they're not washing every single night. But if you're going to be there for a more extended stay, then then certainly you should be asking them to to, to wash the, the, the pillowcases twice a week. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hadley King, as a board-certified dermatologist in New York City. Basically, what we're taking away from this is that uh, your pillowcases have a lot more bacteria than your average toilet seat. But don't freak out. Just fire up the washing machine. And don't stay in a hotel in the nether region. Yeah, exactly. No, <laughs> stay away. You, I'm sure, remember, Rob, uh, that we talked a little while ago about the uh, great resignation. Right. And that was when a lot of workers were just, you know, up and they said, we're done. We're, yeah, we're done with this. We're, we're done with this. We're out of here. Then we talked about being, you know, quiet, quiet quitting mm-hmm. when workers, you know, they said the absolute, bar- they could barely, didn't even hear yeah. them. Right. Very quiet. They were quiet about it. But now, very quiet about it. Now something new. There's a thing called grumpy staying. That's, Grump, that's grumpy what? Grumpy staying. Grumpy staying. That's when the workers stay, but yeah. they let everyone know no, they're not th- happy about it. And that they're grumpy. Right. Well, before we have our guest, what we've done is we've assembled some of our co-workers here in the studio. So we'll not identify them. No, we won't. Hello. So uh, by a show of grunts, how many, <laughs> <laughs> how many, how many of you are staying but are grumpy? That was <laughs> I, I, that was all of them. I think I didn't hear one abstention it's, it's from a, that. It's a grumpy. It's a grumpy. Okay, you can stop a, being. Don't yeah. be that grumpy. I I didn't hear that many grunts uh, until the last time I ate a lot of chili. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for for thanks for your, your, uh, your, your grumpy grunts. Uh, and that brings us to John Swift who is the regional director for Talent Solutions. And I don't know if he's going to want to be on the show now. He's with uh, the firm Robert Half. So, uh, John, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me. So you heard you, you heard our, our little sample here of, of grumpy staying. So is that what it is, that, that people stay in their jobs, but they're just, like, grumpy all the time? Yeah, gr- grumpy staying, um, quiet quitting, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it, there are definitely results of of workers that might be feeling a bit unhappy and burned out. But, you know, there's a lot of things to be grumpy about. So uh, I'm sure a lot of workers are grumpy, and it's not necessarily only about the job. It's about everything else going on in the world these days, right? Totally. So, you know, job openings are, remain really strong right now, which is which is very interesting. Um, uh, you know, they're up at, to 10.1 million openings, um, up from even the latest numbers in back in March. But, you know, right now you have uh, a lot of stress, right? And uh, workers who um, 
have more responsibility now than maybe they did a year or two ago uh, during the pandemic. And obviously that's, uh, and, and teams are lean, thus uh, increasing worker burnout. Do employers appreciate, because I'm guessing they don't, grumpy staying? No, uh, I think I think any employer wants the the best uh, the, the the best version of their employees, right? And so, obviously, when someone's grumpy, they're typically not uh, as productive and not putting their best foot forward. And uh, not only that, but it also creates problems inside the office or workplace because if you've got grumpy people, that rubs off on others, and then you get you know fights, uh, fist fights, knockdown, dragouts, what have you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it it could be a overnight killer of culture when you have, uh, you know, employee sentiment uh, lower than it should be. But but hasn't this always existed, though? I mean, haven't there always been employees who have stayed for one reason or another, but they're just grumpy all the time? Or is it is it really an order of magnitude different now? Yeah, I, I think I think no workplace is ever perfect. Right. That's that's kind of why they call it work. But uh, I, I think this day, this day and age, there's uh, a bit more uh, work, workers expect more from their employers. Um, and you look at the demand for skilled talent um, that continues to persist, especially in Los Angeles. Uh, there there still is this kind of uh, dynamic whereby the, the worker feels as though they are more valuable than maybe they've been in, in the past. And so they they feel like they have the upper hand and, you know, they demand more from their workplace, uh, you know, be it benefits, pay, flexibility, time off, you name it. Um, but obviously, uh, you know, the, the hiring climate's cooled a little bit. And so, uh, you know, employers might be, you know, it's kind of a tug of war. Employers right now, maybe they're thinking like, huh, you know, we, we might have a little more leverage to, you know, for instance, time, you know, uh, time in the office, you know, that that's the big one right now, you know, having company, having their employees get back into the office after the pandemic. And, you know, employers are feeling a little more empowered than they did a year ago. Uh, I'm sure that there's one or two people out there who hear this story and they recognize themselves as that grumpy uh, uh, stayer, uh, grumpy stayer person. And they say to themselves, I don't want to be grumpy necessarily. What can I do since I can't leave this job yet to be a little bit happier, not quite as grumpy? And conversely, what can the boss do to help that grumpy stare? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're a worker that, you know, you might be a bit grumpy, feeling burned out. You know, I I think it's really important to raise your hand and put a meeting on your manager's calendar to discuss kind of your career path and, and discuss uh, maybe what's making you feel a bit grumpy. Um, and I I especially would encourage you to come up with some solutions. Now, no one likes to just hear complainers, but if you are a worker and you have some legitimate concerns or, uh, you know, you, you know of some dynamics that are uh, affecting your happiness at work, then, you know, propose some solutions uh, for, for your, you and your manager to work towards. Um, so So speaking up, um, I think that taking time off is a really uh, important factor in all this uh, for the worker. Um, I think there's probably uh, a lot of workers that have a lot of time off accrued uh, mm. from their time in the pandemic when maybe not much travel was happening. So take that time off. Yeah, there you go. 
All right, uh, John Swift, thank you. Regional Director for Talent Solutions and Business Consulting Firm, Robert Half. Charles, what makes you grumpy here? Oh, um, you know, that's a that's a really good question. Or is it one thing? Maybe it's a lot of things. It's a multitude. Yeah. I mean, it's, and by the way, uh, we should point out for those who are interested that, that all those folks who have joined us in right. the studio yeah. who expressed their grumpiness. Right. They've all been fired. Right. That was fast. That was very it fast. Was, it was very quick. So I'm certainly not grumpy. Are you, Charles? Not, not I'm, now. I'm very happy no. to be here. No, uh, we're just kidding. That's a, yeah, not they're, really. They're, 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 they have not been fired that fast. It, no. It'll no be, it takes, takes time. Yeah, it'll be next week sometime. Uh, this has been KX In Depth. We'll be back tomorrow, uh, maybe, at uh, 1 p.m. <laughs>